Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Elb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be used for investment advice. My guest today is Bridget Wolf, Vice President and Global Head of Snack Futures at Mondelez International. Mondelez International is an American multinational confectionery, food, and beverage holding company. Some of their brands include Oreos, Cadbury, Chips Ahoy, Ritz, and Tate's Bake Shop. Snack Futures is Mondelez's innovation and venture hub. We discuss her investment criteria, when corporate venture capital makes sense for the brand, snack trends she's excited about, and the overall strategy of Snack Futures within Mondelez International. Without further ado, here's Bridget. Bridget, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm good, Mike. Great to see you. So great to see you. So great to see you. I'm so happy we finally got got to able to chat here. Tell me about what is Snack Futures and the relationship between Snack Futures as well to, you know, Mondelez. Yeah, so for context for people listening, Mondelez International is a multi-billion dollar multinational snacking company by many of the brands that you are probably familiar with, like the Oreos and Triscuits, mm-hmm. Toblerone, Cadbury, Trident. Um, so big, big brands with incredible legacy. And Mondelez saw that while the power of big is really important, we recognize that the power of small is too. And those who are doing things faster, um, potentially better, more interesting with consumers are an area of inspiration and something we wanted to get into. So Snack Futures is our innovation and venture arm of Mondelez International, where we um, really are trying to find the next wave of disruptors in snacking and finding those companies and partnering with them to build um, the future of CPG snacking. That's awesome. That's awesome. So how how separate is Snack Futures, would you say, from Mondelez? Snack Futures is part of Mondelez, but we work outside of the day-to-day business units. And I think that was really important so that we don't interfere with, with you know, the core um, operations and we let people focus on the today. And then we can really look to some of the future as to what's going on. So we do work outside, um, but completely connected. So what we do is align to our you know, future state of the company, where we're going with strategy. And we want to align with that because everything we do, we want to make sure it has a home ultimately back in the business. And so what stage, um, when you start looking at companies and, and kind of how does it, how does it work? What's typically the amount that you invest in and, um, how do you also think about like value that, that you bring to the table? I mean, obviously with, with, with Mondelez, but. Yeah. So we started looking at companies, um, originally. So when we do venture capital, we will go from when they're like 10 to $15 million, five, $15 million. And I will say, and we can talk about collab in a little bit. We have looked to smaller companies as well. I think if there's a great strategic fit, what we see to your question of where Mondelez adds value is how can we help really accelerate that growth? How can we really help that company? Where is there a strategic alignment in a category or a consumer group? Where do we have knowledge and some real firepower that we can help um, companies in? So the value that we bring 
is Mondelez and Snack Futures, and this is where we may differ a little bit, is we've lived the big and small. So we can bring big muscle um, to challenges that startups have or areas of expertise. And then we've got 90,000 employees that we can tap into to help a startup. Um, I know probably almost any subject matter in the world. And then with Snack Futures, we actually had done some of our own internal um, incubating. So we built an ecosystem of partners that are used to the startup community, that are used to the stages that companies are at, so we can meet them where they're at and then help them grow along the way. So the stage that you invest in or you look for, that's in that 10 to $15 million range when it comes to Snack Futures. Is that right? Yeah, it's ideal. I will say we've done companies that um, are less than $5 million. And they're great. And so I think it is for anyone listening who has a smaller company, if you've got a couple million dollars in net revenue, you're doing amazingly well. And we are welcoming that conversation. For us, then it's like, you know, how can we get you to be, to get big? Because our goal ultimately is we tend to invest not as a financial player, but as a strategic. So we really would love to see you is how could you fit into our portfolio? Got it. So the eventual the eventual goal with any company that you're investing in is actually to, if all things go well, to actually acquire that company. Yep. Now, if we don't, that's not necessarily saying a bad thing on either side. It could be strategies change, what world changes, who knows. But hopefully, no matter what, that Mondelez is better off for having to invest it and the company is better off with Mondelez at their side for that part of the journey. So I was talking with you know, traditional venture capitalists that invest um, in CPG, um, many of them on the show. And they sometimes get a bit concerned when companies, um, when, you know, a um, they have a strategic on, on the table, you know, um, because when it comes to what their exit potential is, they might actually have to only be then tied to the strategic um, and don't have other options. How do you balance that or, or maybe what are your kind of two cents um, um, on those kind of elements? Yeah, I think there's a couple of thoughts. One is it's definitely evolving and we're seeing with capital sometimes being tighter, the strategics offer a lot of value. So there's there's a great piece there. We, we often say we'll play with anyone in the sandbox behind a direct competitor. Um, I think the piece there is to be really deliberate in clarity of you know, what our expectation is. I mean, you could say, yeah, it closes their options on some things, but if we can be a nice, consistent guide path for them, that would be helpful. And I think that's a win. So I don't think it's a negative. I do think it's us being careful that we, we've heard that, like you don't want to taint their deal. Um, you don't want to do something that's going to you know, create more pain. And so we're really trying to be sensitive to that and and help these companies along the way versus, which is also why we're not going to do a hundred deals a year because, you know, that just doesn't serve anyone. How many deals do you typically do uh, per year? We're going to try and do maybe four or six a year. So call it five on average. Um, you know, really trying to make sure that's the right fit, both culturally and business and strategically for us. So, I mean, it, it seems like it does take a certain, you know, type of founder as well that wants to partner with, you know, Mondelez, Snack Futures. Uh, because, you know, I think as you've implied, it does limit in some ways your exit potential when it comes to, you know, feeding offers if you are looking if you are looking to get acquired from, you know, uh, a competitor of Mondelez. 
what are some of like the traits and characteristics of founders that um, you found really work well um, with, with that partnership? That's a terrific question. I would say those who are very clear of what they know, right? This is, I know my brand, I know my consumer, I know the, the benefit or what we're offering in the marketplace. So they can articulate that very clearly. Those that have a clear view or at least an initial hypothesis of how we can work together and what they need from us and how we can best serve them. And then the last is having the openness to be coached and not hold your baby so preciously. You know, these are things that it's a lot of sweat equity. It's a lot of emotional, it's a lot of real capital that goes into startups and they're everything and you love them and you want to hang on to them and, and they're beautiful because they're your children but sometimes we got to shape and coach along the way. And I think for founders that have an openness to be receptive to this part of your business may not be as strong or you need to prioritize something. It's really not coming from a place of criticism. It's coming from how do we make you stronger for tomorrow? That's really helpful. Um, since this is, and you're very clear about this, which I appreciate, this is, you know, a strategic, you know, investment for ultimately for, you know, Mondelez. When you're evaluating companies, how do you also think about cannibalization? Obviously, Monolise has these incredible legacy brands. Um, how um, within, you know, you know, a number of categories within snacks, um, I'd imagine that you're investing in, you know, categories that um, may may actually be may, uh, competitors to legacy brands. Um, how do you think about that aspect? And also, how do you think about innovation? Because I'd imagine that the Mondelez and their main business units are also innovating um, as well. So how do you think about innovation both outside of Mondelez that you're you know, investing in these companies and also internally? Yeah, I think for us, of those that are external, you know, we'd want to invest in them one day. If they're the ones that are going to cannibalize us, you know, there is an irony of you want to just cannibalize yourself, like take a typewriter to computer. If typewriters are going to become obsolete, you know, and you see it in technology, right? They build in obsolescence for themselves. We need to be mindful of if there is a consumer behavioral shift to this area and we bring them on that they're going to still share it. They were going to still share anyway, and they were going to do it with somebody else. So I think we also have to be in the, in the old world, I think it was a lot more rigorous of this black and white, you know, thou shall not cross. But the truth is um, you have to be open to say there's going to, there's potentially some level of cannibalization um, by bringing them in house. The other way to say it was there's, we would have just had loss to them. And we saw that for a long time with all what we call the insurgent brands, right? You can dismiss them for a while, but then they become a material force. And there are lots of categories where, we have good examples of, you know, they weren't so quiet for so long and they became a major player. And I would have rather had them be a major player in our house. So that's one piece. I do think, you know, there is a, it's a way to keep the, the edge on our core brands. Be like, hey, this is what's nipping at your heels. This is what you're seeing. How are you responding? So to your question about internal innovation, it gives us a great vin window to the marketplace and what's changing. And it gives us a nice little, you know, we can light some fire inside being like, this is coming. And how are we going to respond both as an opportunity and a threat to address? Do you ever feel like there could be when you have, you know, um, obviously legacy brands, and then you're investing in these companies, do you ever feel like 
in terms of sometimes what your role is, it's, it's kind of difficult because you obviously want to su- be supporting, you know, these brands at the same time they're taking market share away from your legacy or, or is it, you know, this is going to happen anyway. And so we got to support, you know, our, our, our companies. Yeah. The, the destiny is happening anyway. I think at least since that future is we take a, um, cleaner view is that if we're in, if we're working with with the startup we want them to grow as much as possible like that's that's in our interest for them to grow now obviously not at the detriment of our core but if they were going to do it you know like i said let's have a seat at the table so i think what we try and find is where are there white space opportunities for us that haven't been fully exploited by our core brands um, where are their new consumer cohorts? So we try and find as much incrementality as we can. And if someone's really a threat and they're going to be the ones that are going to disrupt us, then how do we um, be ready for them? How do you also think about the purpose of Snack Futures and as well as um, this, you know, the Mondelez's innovation hub that's you know external, right? You're, you're finding companies, you're investing companies. Is it to... Um, maybe save ultimately on price when it comes to actually acquiring some of these companies um, later down the road? Is it to actually learn what's out there in the market and kind of help um, um, on the entrepreneurial side? Like how do you define what, how the actual, how Snack Futures actually fits into Monolise's larger strategy? So yes and yes and. Um, <laughs> we, you know, our, it's funny because it's a very, it's a small team and it's, it's a smaller part of the business and people would say this is the tail. I said, we're more like the, the nose of a dog. You know, we're out here with our eyes and we've got a spotlight being able to see what's coming down um, the path in the marketplace and what's emerging and bubbling up with consumer behavior. So for us, it's, it's having a visibility for the organization to the outside world. It's being a connecting point so that we speak fluent, big, and small that we can translate and help the organization, even when they're ready to work with a smaller company, how that might look and kind of the, the learnings and all the way and, and how to protect both sides. And then it absolutely is a piece of, you know, like any venture or anyone, if we can get good pricing and good, um, have a good relationship, even, you know, there is a piece there where, you know, unlike M&A, which is an immediate transaction, um, venture is a long-term relationship. And so we want to be the preferred partner and we want to be the preferred capital and go-to person or ultimately acquire if that becomes the case. Now, now on the strategic side, when someone, you know, when, when you partner with a brand, is there kind of this underlying first right of refusal that Mondelez has when they actually are thinking of selling their business? Um, or does that kind of not exist? No, it's, it's sometimes it's a term that we'll put in. It depends on what the deal is and the, okay. the stage of the company and you know the whole structure. So it's you know it's a it's a term of many that we can use. That's helpful. Um, so what within the world of snacking? How do you how do you think about you know the habits? Maybe some of like the change in habits that people are are doing when it comes to snacking and, and overall how you how you kind of think about this, I want to say category, but of course this covers many categories. Stacking is huge. Um, but how do you, what's kind of like from the, from the, um, uh, from like a bird's eye view, how would one should think about kind of new, um, ab- about snacking overall? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the piece that we could say is for a long time, 
we said there were three meals a day and anything between those meals were considered a snack. And what we've definitely seen with consumer behavior is a blurring of meals. And we have a great Mondelez data snacking report that folks can look up and it has um, some really great insights, but you know, I think it was 79% of consumers are looking for more portion control. You have over 60% are changing the way that they view snacking, how they define it. So where it used to be, everyone had those meals. Now they're saying, no, it's a blurring. So the role of food, I would say, is blurring from just a pure snack function and to just a pure meal function. It's now really, when am I wanting to eat? When do I need to eat something? And then what are the other functional benefits that I am using it for? So recently we learned, right, that 80% of consumers are using snacks for healthy snacking. It's it's kind of a health purpose. 80% are using it for emotional well-being. And then there's a mental component. So there's a lot of reasons for people to eat. They're trying to get more out of their calories or be more mindful of the ingredients and the benefits that these snacks can do for them. So it's like, you know, it, we used to say like certain, certain snacks are like Swiss army knives, but now we want them not to just have one. We want them to have multiple functions in one. And so that's, that's really where I see more snacking. And with COVID, you know, I think where, We saw a lot more snacking at home because everyone was home. So the on the go component was reduced, but we also see people moving as they get ready. Are they eating as they are driving and commuting to work? Are they eating? Are they turning their kids around in the car? So all of those behaviors where you have portability in the home and portability outside the home, we see um, growing. So I think snacking is a really interesting space for us. And to your point, the category there isn't a quote snacking category. It's I would call it behavior, but I think the areas for us we love and we're quite vocal on lately is the focus in our biscuit and baked goods bars with the acquisition of Cliff, um, our chocolate business. So how we can congratulations on that growth in there. Yeah, thank you. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and I I think it's also really interesting just thinking about behavior. It's really interesting about. Um, some of the stats that you that you uh, shared about seventy nine percent of consumers are looking for more portion control, and are replacing some of their meals with snacks. And, and also, as well, how they're snacking, it's almost like they're doing it um, while doing something else. Sometimes, uh, so it's how do you also translate what these um, um, kind of the packaging or 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 the the different use cases for these um, uh, uh, for these products. Um, where actually someone would be able to, you know, multitask um, during um, um, while eating them. Thinking about this, because it seems like quite complex, right? You have these new trends um, that are, you know, within better for you, uh, better for you, which really are affecting, you know, uh, many categories, um, and as well as products that have to be kind of easy to consume. Um, what are maybe some examples that you found that you've been blown away by um, with these kind of two maybe macro trends? Yeah, I mean, what we call it in Snack Futures is good for good for people, kinds of the planet, deliciously fun. Because if they're not delicious, then I mean, they can do all the it has good, to be delicious they, first, they can do right? all the good in the world, <laughs> and you know, they could do exactly. like taking medicine at that point. For us, you know, as I look to see who's been really delicious, like I am part of our our bar portfolio from the perfect 
group and uh, and Cliff, you know, you've got functionality there that's delicious. It's clearly fit a need um, and where Perfect has a different nutritional profile and kind of what they're they're espousing to and how we um, help consumers there. I think there are some interesting examples we've had in our collab class, um, Moonshot, which is a regenerative farm. So when we talk about planetary health and that sustainability side, um, we've had companies that taste delicious but are allergen-free, even though they don't always promote it first like that, like everybody eats. We have Love Corn, which is, to your point, multitasking, the most Moorish, delicious, little crunchy snack that is kind of ubiquitous now in my home. Um, so there's a lot of examples. And then there's, you know, we had Numa come through our collab class, which is this really delicious kind of taffy, but um, lower sugar, higher fiber, different um, uh, needs of the founder. So each one has kind of an own story. Um, I think for some folks, it's what are you looking for? And you know, what are your dietary needs or nutritional needs and gaps? And then there's just such a cool array of, of delicious snacks then starting to address those. So I know we talked a bit about, you know, snack futures and, you know, making investments in companies that have, you know, 10 to $15 million in revenue, um, snack companies, of course. Um, uh, and, and as well as, you know, you also play maybe, a, 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 um, on the early, you can also play on the early side as well. Um, talk to us a little bit about what collab is and, and also how collab was created. Yeah. So collab is by its name, um, Arts Inspiration is a collaboration of big and small. It is our startup engagement program that we run now in our third year. Um, and it came out of, one, how do we get closer to seeing what's going on in the marketplace? And how do we get closer to some who we think are super interesting players? And it was built on the foundations of that work I mentioned. We had done some of our own internal incubating and building this ecosystem as well as the venture. So how do we bring the best of both into a program where we understand pain points and we can bring some real value at a big level and a small level? So we give a $20,000 grant. We have a 12-week program that is a pretty intense curriculum and robust of experts inside and out of our company. Um, we have last year, we finally, thanks to the pandemic, put our first and second class together in a live showcase so that the, the venture and PE and, and kind of broader community could see what they're about. So it's a really holistic program where we try and bring the best out of both sides and really address the need that they have. Um, this year, we have applications open now. So if anyone this will air, you can go to applycolab.com. And we're looking for disruptively delicious snacks. Amazing, amazing. And and um, what have you found on the collab side? So, I mean, talk to me a little bit about, well about like the actual stage um, that companies that um, may be looking to um, apply or 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 it makes sense. And what have you found to be maybe some of the biggest learnings that they've done through uh, through your cohorts going through the program? These are earlier stage, so. In the past, we've had a half a million. This year, we're asking for a million dollars in that revenue as a start. That way, we can really continue to jumpstart them. We have found a couple of learnings. What we try to deliver by the end of the program, and I think what we've heard, we can sure send you a little video of, of what they said about it, is you know, we build a community. 
entrepreneurship is really hard and it's really lonely. And they get out of this a group that is designed to work with each other. It's not a competition. And that's really important because, you know, when you are going through something difficult or even growing, you want to be able to share that. And if it's competitive, we don't have it. So we have this amazing community that gets built. The second thing is we bring in, you know, functional capabilities. We try and give you some real tactical skills or knowledge or frameworks that we use that can help bring them to the next level. And then the third thing is confidence. When you get all of this, you become a better CEO, founder. You can make decisions better. You know that you can make those calls or what the calls should be. So we give a little bit of a boost. And then, like I said, we give a $20,000 grant. So there's, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars of value of expertise that we can bring in and we do bring into this. And then, you know, we get a, a formal piece at the end. Got it. And so, and then at the end, do you decide which, which kind of companies um, that you um, invest in? Like what, what actually happens at the end of the program? No. No, because some of them are so early. So if you think about, it's a little bit of a, a, a path for us to say as they grow, right? Hopefully they've gotten to know us and we've given some real value in the program and we've gotten to know them. And then when they're looking um, for their future raisings and as they're, they continue to expand, that we will you know, be first on their minds. Got it. That makes sense. What um, for, for entrepreneurs that maybe have had a little bit of traction, right? Like that maybe would be good applicants for, for CoLab in the 500K to a million dollar range or a million dollar up um, in sales. Um, what do you see, especially first time entrepreneurs um, within that starting a CPG company? What have you seen that maybe one of the biggest learning curves that they have to o- like overcome and learn that um, maybe could be, what do you think? I think there's a there's been a range. I mean, for some of them, it's organizational structure and building culture and communications where they realize the impact of what they're doing and, and as they as they grow, like how do they grow and how do they deliberately plan stuff? So there's a piece there. One is as they start to look to scale with their operations and manufacturing partners, how to approach those. Um, marketing is probably one of the biggest leaps that we see in communications and their storytelling, both for the consumer side and then in the investment side. So we do help them with, you know, pitch practice and think about what their story is both to investors and then on the comm side for consumers, you know, what's special about your product and how are you going to communicate that in a, in a very busy world? What are currently within snacks, like a couple of, trends that you get really really excited about um and you and these could be categories that maybe um are still you know small and 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 developing yeah so i'm gonna i mean it's well i'm gonna speak like every consumer where you know we want snacks that are really good for us and we want snacks that feel really good so i think the hyper indulgent end of a of a sense of treating yourself and rewarding yourself and giving yourself little luxuries and just that comfort food is, is really neat. And there are some great companies that have emerged in kind of that space um, that I think is you think of either small bites, again, back to the portion control piece, this isn't about constantly going. So having kind of a portion controlled snack that 
you can really have that moment of joy and sharing and indulgence without feeling the flip side downturn of it is one. And then I think on the other is the emerging of the really better for you, like true better for you brands. I think, you know, we talk about snacking and meals. And I think one of the opportunities is, you know, the more real food we had of a brand that we launched called Dirt Kitchen Snacks. It's real vegetables. You see it um, in companies where it's more, more real food um, and kitchen logic coming in that is just making things that are complicated now snackable. When you think about better for you and um, it's funny because I was having this conversation last week with Ashley Hartman also in, in Chicago um, about food tech and also, you know, high growth brands where there isn't, there doesn't have to be like a food technology kind of innovation. And maybe you can also outsource m- mostly um, manufacturing. Um, when you think about innovation, especially in the better for you, and, and maybe if it, if it has those um, check boxes, you know, absolutely delicious, better for the planet, um, better for you, which is rare. It's hard to actually meet all those standards. Um, but um, what it involves, you know, food technology to actually um, be part of the product. And there really is kind of um, maybe a competitive advantage there on product. Is that something that Mondelez would look at investing in that maybe takes up a lot of CapEx and, and startup costs? Or is that something that you maybe shy away from? Yeah, I would love to see... And we see it in personal care. We see it in some beauty, um, for sure, retail and, and, and in the pure tech space. I would love to see some kind of CPG food brand that has, that is fueled or its backbone is some interesting technology that there's an IP in, to your point. I think that would be incredible. So anyone out there with a really cool brand, but like its basis was on the tech versus the tech alone. Um, I think that's super interesting of that bundle. I think in food, sometimes it's challenging is because we don't want tech in our food, but, you know, there's been a ton of technology in manufacturing developments from, you know, where we were a hundred years ago. So I do think, you know, as we look at the food supply system and we look at wanting more diverse eating and more foods, right, to feed more people with less resources, I do think kind of that, you know, industry 4.0 of agricultural 4.0 of how do we source our ingredients? Are there new ways? And this gets into the heavy food tech space of, you know, the cultivated ingredients and fermented ingredients, but there is something really interesting there as to how do you blend that technology to food brands that consumers are receptive of and, and they like the food and they're not freaked out by it. Um, And I think then there's some in the go back to basics, you know, where do we go back to basics of whole foods, real food ingredients, and then are there smarter ways of preserving them? Are there smarter ways of processing them that we can make them still last longer, be safe for people, be affordable for people? You know, there's just such a a laundry list in snacking demands. One thing that really stuck out was about how consumers maybe are unsure about technology um, within their products. For you as an investor and also for you as a consumer, what do you think, how do you get a product that you know uses technology as an alternative? How do you kind of get that in consumers, like 
get consumers comfortable um, with actually, you know, eating, buying, shopping that that food? And where do you think overall, you know, food tech um, will go? So, yeah, I think the big thing with with you know, like any technology and an R and D is to say the so what. What is the benefit of it? You know, why does a consumer care? Because it can do all this really cool stuff, but at the end of the day, I got to put it in very basic human terms and say, why do I care? And how does this help me live a better life or an easier life or or whatever it's going to be or a more joyful life? And I think that's the first piece um, of keeping it really simple. What are the benefits? And then I think we have to be careful of the, the negatives, right? Like we see a huge rise in plant-based snacking and eating for a myriad of reasons. One from you know, just food diversity, one from health, but clearly on, on an environmental footprint with carbon and, and methane and or an ethical piece with you know, humaneness to animals. The challenge then is, okay, if you get your taste all there, which there are some skeptics, is, is that product any better? Is it better for me as a consumer? Are there more chemicals and more gobbledygook in there that freaks me out more? So is it really helping me? Is it more affordable? And and is it really pushing an ethical piece that enough people care about? And not to say that it's not important. It's really important. But I think that's the challenge too, is getting enough people to care, to care to pay a premium sometimes in the beginning. Um and then to make it where there aren't any other other negative consequences of their choice. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, and we talked about this many times um, on the show, but I I love to reiterate it that there there is seems like a, a little bit of a bifurcation of consumers of and really questioning, you know, what products and really being focused on what products are actually better for me versus products that are actually better for the environment. It's possible that that could um, intersect, and you could release product. Um, that that serves both, but it's also really really challenging as well, right? When you actually go through like, the ingredients list and, and and some of the alternatives that um, um, that products use. How do you think about when you're when you're analyzing new brands about maybe ingredient choice that they're uh, uh, that they're using? Well, often they'll sell it, right? They'll say, "I only have ten ingredients," or "I only have something else." <laughs> not, so processed, them, not processed. Not processed. Not um, processed. Look, all food is processed. You know, almonds are processed to some extent. Yeah, yeah, they exactly. are. I mean, milk is processed. Pasteurization is a process. Food safety is a very welcome process. Um, cleanliness is a process. You know, so it is. It is a, a piece of. There's. You know, how are you processing and, and what do I my only ultimately consuming at, at the end point? I think personally, a uh, huge list of ingredients is really hard. You know, I think fewer better sometimes or, or the cleaner and the more understandable. Or even years ago, I saw in Tom's, it was so cool. They had chemicals, but then they explained their functionality. So this is for fluoride, this is for cleaning, this is for whitening. Um, that is helpful. And they may not even be, they may be natural ingredients, but they're more on the, um, the technical side that consumers aren't aware of. Like, why, why is this in my product? Well, this is here for, you know, anti-molding. Not that you would say that way, but you would say for you know, shelf life and um, food safety. So things like that. I wanted to also talk a little bit about 
how you think about maybe positioning and terminology um, within food. I mean, you know, I, I would say maybe um, for the past, I don't know, 15 years or so um, with a lot of bit different diets. I mean, I mean, I mean, not just past 15 years, but, you know, um, keto, for example, becoming very popular and paleo becoming very popular and these, these kind of different alternative diets becoming popular and maybe brands that are kind of capitalizing, um, on those kind of phrases or, or, or terminology, um, you know, whole grains, for example, and, and, you know, eating whole has become maybe a term that, 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 that now is maybe stuck in consumers' minds. Um, when, when you're thinking about the future and, and when you see like, you know, companies pitch, what are kind of, are you seeing maybe new, it doesn't have to be a diet per se, but just new terminology that you're seeing within better for you in order that's actually describing um, products or a movement? No, it's a great question because I was going to say, I think like I chuckle with the whole grain because we could go back 20 years where we were trying to get consumers to eat whole grains, the number of whole <laughs> grains in any biscuit. Yeah. And you know, yeah. consumers are like, I don't know. I don't know it. I don't, I don't care. Um, Why? So that's coming back, right? Why? And I think now it was interesting, right? We were, I was just seeing an article the other day was the FDA putting out a different, you know, their definition of what's going to be healthy, right? If trying to give consumers more standards of identity and how they're going to define those products, because in some cases it's a, it's a little wonky of, of what's one healthy product or another in their category. Um you don't see it on labels, but you hear consumers talk about, to your point, non-processed, clean. And I think it's less of the explicit claim. Um, the grain-free, I think, is a nicer way of saying than gluten-free if they're looking for it. But people who have um, you know, dietary restrictions just want the clarity of, of tell me what it is. I think the question with paleo and keto, and I think you might have mentioned one other one that I had um, frozen on, but... They're, they're an interesting subset of diets. It's not the only diet. So sometimes I think even keto friendly, we've talked about, do you use the word vegan? Do you use the word vegan friendly or plant-based? And, you know, where, where do you say things? Because plant-based is much more appealing to the masses than to vegan. Um, and I think so, which things are attainable and, um, approachable for consumers to understand too. So you could, you know, we, probably we can make columns of like, what is the kind of extreme pure version of the consumer or the diet that eats this way? What's the basic fundamental of it, right? High fat, low carb, low sugar. So could you just say low sugar, low carb, you know, um, and high protein. So I think, or is it just protein that, you know, still continues to be never ending, um, on its way. I think we've seen some ebbs and flows in gut health. Um, you know, for a while, the immunity and all of that was growing so much. I think, you know, that may rebound back after some point, um, as people kind of get passed through all of the, uh, I would say the still the current heaviness of the pandemic of, you know, how do you have your safe, a stronger immunity? We'll see as we go into flu season. No, those are those are really really great points, um, and I appreciate some of the terms that you uh, are mentioning, as well as um, you know what how brands are positioning. Also, just you know, for example, what you said about you know using plant based as opposed to saying vegan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always just find it interesting where there's maybe some terms that you know are maybe nascent or niche now that might you know catch fire later on down the road and actually appeal then a lot more and then there and that brand is kind of attributed to actually starting or or being part of that you know movement per se 
Yeah. Well, I mean, like we always talk to Activia, right? Activia was a like the quintessential initial gut health piece. And because of that, everyone knows what probiotics are. Um, prebiotics, right, is the next wave of that. And so there's, I think we'll see different adapters of going on if there's a major player that comes out and can start pushing that and communicating it again in a way that people get it without all the heavy science. And I think that's sometimes the challenge with the functionality is trying to explain so much tech um, in a snack. You know, it's like you have all this brilliant <laughs> science and technology behind a very simple thing that I'm popping in my mouth. Um, and and that's, that's a tension of, you know, it's just a really simple moment. Don't make it so complicated. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really great point. That's a really great point. Um, I wanted to also talk a little bit about distribution. I'd imagine, um, since when you're evaluating companies, looking at companies, the, and, and snacking in general, it has to work in retail. It has to work in, in grocery. Um, but wanted to know how you think about the role of the online channels e-commerce is for, um, for snack brands. I think it's really important, but maybe not in, in the way that everyone thinks of, oh, I have to be distributed everywhere. So we talk about, there's a thing called laws of growth where your mental availability and your physical availability. And obviously online gives you an additional physical availability point, but it's also mental. Like if I'm shopping in different places and I can see you online, if I can serve my needs, because there is definitely more of this, I want my snacks anytime, anywhere I want them. Um, so there is a great piece about whether it's D2C, e-com, Corporate, I mean, but think of it also, like you could be on the Kroger website or the Target website or the you know, the local Jewel. Those are all touch points is when I think of digital, it's not necessarily the retail, but how do you connect? Like how do you connect your offline to your online world? And I think sometimes it's, we just want to be there because um, we want to be able to you know, make sure we have a presence as people are scrolling and buying those impulse buys that they see us. Sometimes it's, it's a great way to get feedback from consumers in the e-com and you see are the comments or you can amplify the message in social. And then there's social shopping. I, mean, I used to joke about, um, you know, everyone used to buy gum and chocolate or magazines as they were checking out. And then when cell phones came in, they replaced a lot of that, you know, you know, perusing the, the checkout aisle of snacks. But I would argue like through Instagram shopping, I've bought all sorts of things. It's like shop now. And so there's my impulse buy. And we hear this, particularly of the younger consumers, right? They don't necessarily go to the local bakery that they've always gone to with that special guy who makes the special thing. It's they saw some cool thing online that's in the area and get delivered now and sign up now and it gets shipped to their house. And voila, that's how they got their cake. And it's tough though with snacks because you know, snacks, it's typically a pretty low, low price point and selling online that's, you know, can get very expensive, you know, selling obviously like a single product. And so it's, it's difficult, even though you, you still have that kind of impulse buy um, online, but it is still very, very different to, you know, going to a store and just buying it um, on the, on the actual brand itself. I can also understand why, you know, building online too, it, it also is, is challenging um, as well. Yeah. And look, it's, if you have a, a simple snack to ship, you know, starting online is great. Cause that's your, you build, you are the distribution. 
um, versus having to pay for it and fight for it and keep it. The, the distribution story is only one half of the story, though. The other half that people forget is the velocity. It doesn't matter that you're there. If you're not moving, A, you won't be there long and you'll be doing a lot of cleanup. So you really have to think of it as a one-two punch. How do I build my distribution and how do I build my velocity where I am? And how do I support where I am to drive that velocity, whether that's online or offline? Um, and then the other piece is just be strategic. Like, what is this channel giving me? You know, is it is it strictly distribution or is it giving me visibility? Is it giving me credibility, right? Certain retailers or certain apps or certain places you may want to be on like Thrive or, you know, do you want to be on Amazon? And you know, do you want to be in some of these places that have a different halo because their, their retailer has that benefit? Yeah. Because you, you already have, um, then you kind of almost have built in distribution. Um, if you actually go on, um, you know, an Amazon or Thrive, you, you have, um, intent for people to actually shop and find you. Um, and also too, like what's, what's great about the DC channel is, um, or just, you know, e-commerce, um, is that you also have a chance for if you're a young brand to learn um, what packaging works, what what phrasing do people say in in, in their reviews? In um, because once you you know in store, that's then a big shipment, and then you're you're locked in. You can't just go out and change out your packaging or change your positioning or what have you. And so that's what I I think that um, e-commerce is just an incredible place to really just learn and understand how customers actually. Um, why customers actually buy your product in the first place. I, I would agree. I think it's a wonderful place if you're launching something new or you want to change something, you know, to do some A-B testing, you know, put it up on your site one way, put it up on another way and see what happens. Definitely, definitely. Um, what is one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? So I'll start with, I'll actually go way back when, um, The Tao of Pooh which is the the explanation of Taoism through the Winnie the Pooh characters already years ago. It's kind of a life-changing perspective of Tao means the way. And there really is something about Winnie the Pooh and, and all of the characters of who likes to overcomplicate things and think things or look smart and things like that. So that's a lovely book. Um, there's a book called The Choice um, by Edith... Edgar, um, who is a Holocaust survivor and a trauma psychologist. And it's just an incredible story. Her personal story is incredible, but then um, a story about just resilience and mindsets and growth. And um, this wonderful phrase of not why me, but what's next when stuff happens to process that. Um, and there are just oodles. I would say professionally, um, of late, I refer to Loon Shots a lot. Um, I really enjoyed that book. And I think it's a cool thing is we have particularly big and small of how do you keep um, innovation and energy to the future while still protecting and, you know, doing the base. You got to run both at the same time. And there are, there's different ways of how you manage that. So I would say Moonshots is a great book. Um, I really appreciate you sharing uh, uh, these. Um, the choice, the Tao the of Pooh, which... I had never heard before, um, and no one had ever brought this up on the show. So um, that um, I'm really excited to add that to the book list, and I'm definitely going to read it. Um, sounds yes. sounds awesome. There's a Tea of Piglet, which I hadn't read either, but the Tao of Boo is is one of them. Cool, cool. Um, my final question for you is: What's one piece of advice that you might have for anyone who's founding a, a snack company? 
I think for anyone who's running any company, um, you know, find, find what you're in it for and who you're serving, right? So why are you doing this? I guess it's not just the one piece of advice. I would say be kind to yourself. Oh, here's probably the biggest and ask for help. Um, we have, we've learned this actually with one of our cola companies did a wonderful class about, about fearless asking. Um, but I think what we find is founders tend to be too proud. You either don't want to tell your investors you don't know, or you don't want to tell other people that it may not be going well. And the truth is, if you raise your hand and ask for help, you might find the solution to help much faster, and it won't be such a lonely journey. So you may be able to save yourself and the business um, a lot of you know heartache because this is not this isn't an easy isn't an easy road. Love that, love that. Um, I. I me I I completely agree. Um and you know it's it's funny because we get I feel like sometimes um we love to say that we're re- resourceful. To me what resourcefulness actually means is you actually are are actually asking for help. You're you're trying to figure out a problem and using any anything in your network or or just anyone any relationship that you build to actually help you solve that problem. Um totally. and so you know, it's, and I think that asking for help, it's almost like a negative thing, but I try to tie it into, okay, we are actually being resourceful. So it actually is a positive thing. Um, so, and kind of lean on that more so than, um, than thinking about that, that it's, oh gosh, I have to, you know, ask for help, which, um, which is, um, which, which doesn't look good. So, um, cool. Um, Bridget, thank you so much. It's been so much fun chatting with you. Thank you, Mike. This has been a pleasure. It's great. Thank you. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Bridget. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.